Good morning and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Erica. And I'm Abby. And today I'm going to tell you about one of the biggest mass murders in Alaskan history. So pour yourselves a strong cup of joe and let's dive in. We will continue on with our content for this week's episode shortly, but first we wanted to take a moment to let you know about an opportunity to listen to even more Crime Over Coffee content. By signing up for our Patreon, you can receive ad-free episodes and additional content. To check out this opportunity and sign up for the Crime Over Coffee Patreon, visit www.patreon.com slash crimeovercoffeepod. Thank you again for all of your support. So as I mentioned in the intro, I'm going to be telling you about one of the biggest mass murders in Alaskan history. A lot of the information that I'm going to be telling you about comes from People Magazine. They had done pretty big, I'll call it investigation into this. They had multiple articles about this case, as well as it being featured on their docuseries, People Investigate, which just by the way, is a really great docu-series if anybody is looking for a good true crime one. I've recently found it and I've probably watched an episode almost every night. So you might be catching some of our episodes lining up with those because that's where I've been getting some ideas from Um, because they have a lot of cases that I just hadn't even heard of before. And this one, I was very surprised that I had not come across prior to seeing it on this docu-series. Our story takes place in 1982, September of 1982 to be specific, in a village called Craig, Alaska. 28-year-old Mark Colthurst was a fisherman and he had owned a 58-foot fishing boat that was called the Investor. He predominantly fished for salmon and he was extremely good at this job. His boat as a result of him being such a successful fisherman was roughly $850,000. Some reports call it a million dollar boat. And it was, especially in this area, just a very significant, prominent boat. And he was known to be one of the best in the industry. Colthurst was from Blaine, Washington, but as some of you may know, fishermen have seasons usually. And so he was up in Alaska during the fishing season. And at this point, it was towards the end of the fishing season. As I mentioned, he was one of the top dogs in this business. And as such, he had a couple qualities that people knew him as. And one of the things that stemmed from this was that he did start fishing when he was very young. Um, I've seen some reports to say as early as teenager years or early 20s, and he was pretty good at it from the get. He was very hardworking, very well respected, and it was often said that he always would state that he's going to be retiring by 50 because he was so successful with this job. I do want to mention, along with the qualities of being a hard worker and doing such a good job in a field that probably is pretty physically and mentally demanding. He was very by the book. He wanted to get the job done. He was a pretty stern guy because of this. And it has been mentioned that he sometimes would be a little stubborn or have a temper. And that kind of got coupled with just how seriously he took his job and his business. 
On September 5th, 1982, Mark and his crew and his family who was with him arrived in Craig, the village I mentioned earlier. On September 6th, the day after they arrived, the family and the crew was at a local restaurant celebrating Mark's birthday. And among the investor were a few other ships that were also involved in the fishing industry. Um, They have specific names for these kind of ships that I don't know, and I wasn't even going to try to pronounce them. So if there's any fishermen listening, I apologize for not saying the actual names of the ships. Anyway, they leave the restaurant and they all get back to the ship around 9.30 p.m. Early in the morning on September 7th, it's reported that some other fishermen around the area had noticed that the investor left the dock. And eventually, later in the day, people see that the investor is actually on fire. Firemen and local authorities and volunteers go out trying to put the fire out. And within about four hours, they do control the flames a little bit. It actually ended up rekindling and catching fire again, and it burned for upwards of 42 hours. Oh, wow. So I'm assuming there was extensive damage to the ship. Absolutely. It was basically just gone. I mean, it was still physically there, the bottom of it, but everything else was just completely burnt. Once they are um, able to get aboard the ship, what they do realize is that they're able to identify four bodies initially, and they have been, as I mentioned, burned beyond recognition. Um, But what they could tell was that it was three adults and a kid. And they have some interviews with investigators and troopers and Alaska State Trooper Bob Anderson said basically right away they were pretty sure it was a homicide. As they keep going through the wreckage um, they're using kind of like sifters um, or like screens to try to go through and see if they can find any fragments of anything because so much of it was just ash. And what they do find is a tooth and 10 pounds of human bone fragments. With the fact that they were at a dock and it was the end of the fishing season, there were quite a few people around. And along with this, there were quite a few witnesses that claimed they saw a man that they they weren't sure of around the investor or on the investor. Um, And I will dig in a little bit more to that later. But something I think I forgot to mention, the village of Craig was only home to a population of about 600 people. It was certainly a, everybody knows everybody, and especially in this fishing community, a lot of people knew each other. And so they have this description of somebody that they think suspicious in one way or other that people aren't recognizing. And the description is for a white male in his early 20s, about 5'10", of medium build with straight brown hair and a sallow pockmarked complexion. I'm not quite sure what that means. I'm guessing kind of just like a, looks like he needs a nap or has been through a lot, like a pale kind of tired complexion. And that he was wearing glasses with rectangular lenses. Yeah, you'd think with a population of only 600 people, you know, everybody's going to know everybody. So it almost points to an outsider coming in and being a part of this. I don't know much about the fishing community to be honest i'm assuming there is a bunch of rivalries in that area just like i mean every job has that and so 
that's one where I think you could make enemies a little easier than in other positions. Yeah, absolutely. And as I mentioned, Mark was one of the top people in this. There was some comments about how he, how one week he caught $105,000 worth of fish. So, and not to mention his ship was top notch compared to the others in the area. So I think you're spot on there. I think I'm doing something wrong with my life if I can make $105,000 by catching fish. I mean, I can't probably. I don't have that patience. But like, can you really make that much money? That's insane. Well, I mean, I and I don't know what it's like now, obviously. But yeah, that's... And mind you, this is the 1980s. So let's think about inflation. It's That's a good chunk of change for a week. So he was certainly a... A very, very successful fisherman. So police and volunteers are out looking for this for this person of interest, trying to figure out who it was and if he was involved. And they are able to determine that nobody matching that description had left by seaplane or the ferry that comes by a few weeks. And that he may have left on one of the other boats or ships that were in at the dock around this time or at the harbor around this time. And I did find in my notes here, let me back up. <laughs> Seners and trollers are the types of ships there or boats they're referring to. So I caught myself there. As I mentioned, they were able to immediately find bodies that were three adults and one child and with the bone fragments as well, but they were, they had to send this stuff into pathologists to identify who it was. And what they discovered for the first four bodies that they found was that they were of Mark Colthurst, his wife, Irene, who was pregnant at the time, and their daughter, Kimberly, who I'm not sure exactly of her age, but she was supposed to be starting kindergarten that week. And then the last body was that of Mark's cousin, Michael Stewart, who was 19 years old. They are also able to determine that Mark and his wife had both been shot several times with either a rifle or a pistol. So this is most definitely not an accidental fire and Mark and his wife were targeted. Well, at least Mark was what I would assume was targeted. Correct. They're pretty sure... At this point, and I mean, even the trooper said from the get that they were pretty sure that this was a homicide. And a little bit later, they are able to identify some more of the remains that they had found. And they were confirmed to be other members of the crew, of Mark's crew. And that was Jerome Kuan, who is 19, Dean Moon, who is 19 as well, Chris Heyman, who is 18 years old, and... Mark and Irene's son, John. However, they actually were not able to find any remains of John. Um, He was four years old at the time, and they believe that he was likely in the part of the boat that was impacted by the fire the most and that there were just no remains left. Another thing to note, which we all probably could have kind of guessed or maybe guessed, there was no carbon monoxide in their lungs. So they were all dead prior to the fire being lit. Were they able to determine the cause of death for everyone else? Or they only knew that Mark and his wife died from the gunshot wound? They only knew of Mark and Irene's deaths for sure. Just because of 
the state of the bodies after the fire. So were they able to determine what the cause of the fire was then? I could be wrong because I'm not a firefighter, but I'm assuming the area where John was is probably where the fire originated since it was the most badly burned area. But that's just my amateur knowledge, so... Well, it's... From what they could tell, they knew that the fire was intentionally set. However, I'm not sure if they ever found out exactly how it was set. Um, I know they have some ideas or guesses, which I might... um, Which I'll get into a little bit later. But they did determine that it was no accidental fire. And I'm sure part of that was just from the fact that Mark and Irene were clearly shot and that they were all passed away before. Um, I should mention as well that Dean Moon and Chris Heyman, they weren't positively identified initially. And so for a little bit, investigators maybe thought that they had done something and taken off, but they don't, they don't believe this anymore. At this point, investigators are kind of trying to figure out what the heck happened because this is a ridiculously violent crime. I mean, even if one person or another person had a problem with someone else, they killed this many people who, while they were all connected through work or family, it still seems odd that somebody, let's say somebody has an issue with Mark, that they would kill everyone. It's a pretty violent crime for something that, in theory, they think maybe would have to do with a rivalry or some type of bad blood because they're pretty sure at this point, you know, there's nothing to do with drugs or um, a robbery because boats at this time wouldn't be carrying a lot of money or valuables because it is a boat. And so at this point, they're just trying to figure out what's going on. So you stated that police kind of assumed that there probably wasn't like a robbery of any sort, but I'm assuming Mark and his family had a home on the mainland somewhere or on some land. They didn't just live on the boat, right? Well, they were from Washington and they were on the boat docked up in Alaska for fishing. So their home wasn't anywhere close. Investigators try to piece together what happened and what they determine is that likely in the middle of the night, the boarded the ship, the investor, and ended up murdering everybody. And then following that, a few hours later, he drove the investor out to the area where it was found. And they can determine this because actually while he was the suspect was taking the ship out, they passed a nearby boat or vessel and waved to them kind of nonchalantly. And they didn't know any difference. So they were just like, oh, okay. And that comes up. I mean, investigators found that out later when they were canvassing. But what they suspect is that he had taken them or taken the boat out and they had likely had another boat that was already kind of in another area in a little cove and that he got on that and took it back and then actually spent the afternoon or the day in town and then came back with a can of gasoline and then set it on fire before leaving to come back to town on his other boat and then vanishing. With this, I want to just quickly talk about a few eyewitness eyewitness accounts that kind of helped them determine this. And I am going to explain a couple more eyewitness accounts later. But for right now, I do want to discuss that there were some witnesses that in the middle of the night maybe heard some sounds, but they really weren't sure what it was or they were half asleep and they didn't think anything of it. And 
as I mentioned, there was that one where he waved when he was driving the investor out to another fisherman. And then there was um, another account that said two fishermen had actually run into this gentleman and he was, it was post the investor being on fire and he was kind of leaving and he was like, oh no, it's okay. Like there's nobody on board. Nobody's in danger. And he even offered to lend his other boat to people who want to get a closer view of the boat that was on fire. And then he just kind of left. And these witnesses say they kind of just figured he was a crew member who was maybe going to get some help. So he very much just kind of vanished in plain sight. It seems like this is a very well thought out methodical plan. Like, I mean, it wasn't just like a random idea that came into their mind. Like, I'm going to attack Mark today. Like they, I'm assuming had been planning it for weeks at this point, whoever it was. Yeah, it's, you know, it's either they are planning it or like it really did just happen spur of the moment. And this person just had the like, I don't know what to call it, but (laughs) the ability, I guess, to just stay calm through this whole situation, which is horrifying especially along with the crime he had just committed. But it's it's crazy that like he was just confident enough to just even interact with people, you know, because that's the reason we have these descriptions of him is because he interact with so many people. But it's just it's odd. It's an odd way. You don't really hear about that that often. And not only odd, but it's also like terrifying that somebody can be so calm after brutally murdering eight people and then setting it on fire to destroy the like there was a lot of thoughts but it's also just terrifying that he then like walked away and was just like this is a totally normal day it makes me wonder if this wasn't his first time doing something like this or it doesn't sound like it but maybe he did have an accomplice that kind of helped because it's a lot to subdue eight people i know i know that two of them were children but it's still that's a lot that's a great point too because I mean, it's majority of this group. I mean, we have Mark, who is in his late 20s, and his crew are all like 18, 19 year old fishermen. A lot of them were athletes as well. I didn't mention that before, but quite a few of them were. So you're absolutely right. I mean, that's a lot. And unless they're all asleep and he really gets the jump on them, but it seems almost impossible to do if it's just one person. Well, and you said if he got the jump on them, I have questions too, I guess, kind of. I mean, he shot two people and Mark was one of them. I would assume that Mark and his wife, Irene, would have been some of the first people that they would have taken out. You would have thought that there would have been some sort of noise that would have woken the crew up that would have gotten their attention. It's odd how it played out in this guy's favor and how he was able to just like sneak away without raising any real suspicion at the moment. Yeah, 100%. And unfortunately, as Erica just said, he he did sneak away. They have that witness description, but then the trail went cold. As time goes by, investigators are actively digging into this case. It is obviously an extreme crime that's happened, and it happened to such a small community that people were really impacted by this and they were looking for justice and same way the police investigators were as well. And so they're really searching Alaska and Washington, trying to find this person that matches the eyewitness testimonies, eyewitness descriptions. 
the hard time they're having is, as mentioned earlier, there's really no apparent motive and there's not a lot of physical evidence because it was destroyed in the fire. And another thing I mentioned earlier was the end of the fishing season. So a lot of people had left. There were a lot of people in and out. And what they were trying to do was track down everybody that had been at that dock and their crew members. So speaking to these captains of these ships and saying who all was working for you. And so with that, they can compile a list to go through, see if anybody matches the description or anybody seems suspicious or X, Y, and Z. Police detective David McNeil is a um, big role in this. And I read some interviews with him and he was also featured on the docuseries. And he's kind of talking about this process and how they're whittling it down and how about after a year, they are able to narrow it down to three people and then eventually narrow it down to one person that they're pretty sure is their person. And so it's two years later. And at this point, they arrest John Kenneth Peel, who is a 24 year old who had been a boatyard worker and a fisherman and he had worked for mark at one time in the past i'm assuming there was maybe some bad blood between the two of them that comes out well that's what's kind of interesting and a lot of this is talked about in the docuseries episode so what they mention, and i mentioned before mark was a hard worker and he was good at his job and he held his crew to a certain standard so apparently when John Peel is working for him, he maybe wasn't working as hard as Mark wanted and his employees. And so he did get fired. And he later on went to work for another ship or a boat called the Lily 8. Uh, it was definitely a downgrade from the investor and the caliber that the investor and its crew was at. And so at one point, John wanted to come back and get his job back basically and so it goes that he asked mark for his job back and mark was just like no i i fired you for a reason i don't want you to come back here so apparently peel has this circumstantial evidence and witnesses are saying this is the guy i saw he was identified by four witnesses in photographs john was charged with first degree murder for the deaths of the eight people as well as first degree arson so they kind of basically think he was just pissed off at Mark and kind of went in this crazy rage and killed everyone. And then obviously set the fire to cover up his crimes. Something that I thought was very interesting that was noted in these investigations is that because of the whole eyewitness testimony being such a core thing in this case, the lawyer, when he brought John in for, for court, and his arraignment, he had like a ski mask on. And during court? Yeah. Well, at least when he entered. Okay. I was um, like, that seems not allowed. Um, and he also had a bulletproof vest on. And I thought that was interesting because as I mentioned earlier, the community was really impacted by this and they were pissed off and they had the right to be. This was a terrible crime. And so they were concerned that this guy was going to get shot. I, the bulletproof vest, the bulletproof vest doesn't surprise me. Like, especially we covered a case a while ago where people had gone to 
court for a crime that they had committed against children in the towns. People were like up in arms about it and ended up actually killing the guy before he even got a sentence. But the ski mask just seems like an interesting extra touch. Like, I think people already kind of know who you are. I'm assuming his picture was probably in the paper somewhere. I mean, in theory, when they pick a jury, they're trying to find people who have no idea. So maybe it had to do with that. Yeah. I just find that one interesting. I've not heard of that. Like somebody Mm -hmm. wearing a ski mask in their, their trial. During this trial, which occurred in 1986, it lasted over a little over six months. There were eyewitness testimonies and other people who came up and talked about John Peel, obviously, or not surprisingly. His friends basically were like, no, he was a good guy. He wasn't violent. He wouldn't fight. But we also have other people who knew him, um, specifically the article mentioned a relative of one of the victims that knew him to be a drinker and drug user. And this is a person where the information came from that he had, that John had worked for Mark and been fired because of this issue. And they do specifically talk about the drug use in the um, docu-series. And additionally, there's witnesses that are saying, yeah, we actually, well, there was one witness that said they saw John board the investor the night of the killings. And another person saying, yeah, that guy bought gasoline from me. And this was hours before the fire was set. And then there's other people that are talking about this kind of discourse between Mark and John. This is looking but very suspicious for John. Right. It's a lot of, you know, eyewitness, circumstantial. But this actually ends up in a hung jury. And he is not convicted and he actually is retrialed in January of 1988. So two years later, and just something I noticed in my research with this about this second trial and coupled with the first one, this was Alaska's longest running prosecution trial. And it was one of the most expensive getting up to $2 million. And so I mentioned he's retried and this one takes about three months And after four days of deliberation, they decide to acquit John Peel of the crimes because they don't think they can fully convict him of them. That is such a hard part when it comes to so much circumstantial evidence, because when you don't have that hard and fast evidence, there's people that, for good reason, obviously, they are hesitant to find him guilty because they're like, circumstantial evidence is one of the things that is harder to like actually completely prove right because it's a lot of word of mouth and things it's i'm hoping that this comes to be a little happier of an ending because so far i'm kind of sad but maybe maybe some random evidence will show up i'm kind of hopeful abby but by your face i shouldn't be hopeful okay no unfortunately i would not be hopeful for how this ends up i'll finish up with john real quick though um He does file a wrongful prosecution suit against Alaska, and he is awarded um, $900,000. I just, I'll mention though, he did file a $177 million civil suit, and he ended up getting $900,000. What? Well, I mean, clearly there was something that maybe we're not knowing or not privy to that is really pointing to his innocence if he wasn't able after two trials to be convicted and he wins the settlement so i'm more concerned about the fact that he first off tried to get 177 million dollars for a wrongful prosecution we have people that are wrongfully convicted that spend 20 30 years in prison and they don't even get 
$900,000. Well, yeah, I'm, you know, I am surprised he was awarded it. Just felt like that was a high amount. Yeah. I mean, let's say he is innocent. I'm not saying one way or the other. I have no idea. But if he is innocent and he went through all this, he does, you know, in theory, kind of deserve some compensation. He's relatively open. I know he um, did an interview. I don't know a lot about that interview, but basically a reporter was like, what do you think it's going to take to clear your name? And he said for them to solve the case. Others are pretty sure they had the right person. I mean, obviously, if they took it to trial, they do truly believe they had the right person in theory. Hopefully there's just no not enough evidence to actually convict him. And then I'm going to end with one thing that I thought was really interesting in the docuseries. So Mark's little sister, Lori Hart, um, was pretty sure that John Peel was responsible as well. And he actually met up with her to answer some questions to Mark's family. I think it was her and maybe her sister. And following this, she actually says, quote, I don't know if he's actually the one who pulled the trigger, but I think he knows more than he's saying, end quote. And I thought that was interesting especially with Eric and I talking about potentially being more than one person involved. Maybe someone did kill them and he covered it up by buying the gasoline and setting the fire. He must have been very convincing or either convincing if he had done it or he truly is innocent. I mean, obviously, we don't know to this day. Well, whether... John Peels is innocent or guilty. I have no idea. Obviously, he was not convicted after two trials. So in the eyes of the law, he is innocent. But to this day, this case remains unsolved. Thanks to listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. All of our sources can be found in the show notes for each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. You can also support us by recommending us to friends and family, giving us a good review on Apple Podcasts, or subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.